Well, good morning, and it is good to have you here again to worship together in this way and to pray together and to look into God's Word together. And uh, this morning we are continuing in our series on Matthew, and we are looking at the end of Matthew chapter 11. And uh, in these final verses of Matthew chapter 11, we encounter two very contrasting statements uh, that appear almost contradictory. And so we're going to look at them now and uh, look into why these things would be said by Jesus, why Matthew would put them together, why Jesus would put them together, uh, and how we're meant to reconcile them and what they mean. And uh, so let's just, this is a good message to just start with just looking at the text. And then from the text, we will determine where it takes us. Uh, let, let me just pray uh, briefly for us uh, before we open up the Word of God in Matthew eleven twenty to 30. Father God, we pray this morning that uh, you would open up our hearts, open up our eyes to what it is that you would have us see in this text, uh, that we would learn from the words of Jesus uh, more about him, more about ourselves, and more about you, uh, so that we can better understand the relationship that we are to have with you and the love that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew eleven twenty to 30 reads this way. <clears throat> then he, that's being Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as I said at the beginning, we have here at the end of Matthew chapter 11, two seemingly incompatible or inconsistent statements from the same man, Jesus. The first statement is, woe to you. The next statement immediately following is, come unto me. So judgment for these cities rest for all who come, who are weary. And Jesus says these things together, and Matthew records them for us together. They cannot be separated, and yet many preachers and many authors and many supposed teachers have been trying very hard for many centuries to try to separate these two statements of Jesus, to try to separate these two natures of Jesus, to try to separate these two realities of God and Jesus and our condition in the universe. There's a reason that Jesus says both of them and a reason that they are said together. Because in these two statements, essentially, we have the whole gospel and we have the whole of Jesus Christ. 
We have to understand that it won't do us any good to have only half of a gospel or half of a Messiah. We need the whole person of Jesus and we need the complete message of his gospel to do us any good. And a great deal of confusion arises if we try to separate them. Yet people inevitably try to separate these two natures of Jesus, these two messages of the gospel. Rather than taking the whole Jesus or the whole gospel, they take some parts that they like and leave the others behind. You have perhaps heard them preach or read some of their books, and they say the church has got Jesus and the gospel wrong all this time. They say even maybe the gospel writers have got Jesus wrong, that the gospel writers made a mistake putting these words in Jesus's mouth here. You can't have someone who is saying, come unto me, also be the same person saying, woe unto thee. It's a contradiction. You can't have love and wrath together in the same person, they say. The idea of these teachers is that God is nothing but love, and they interpret his love to mean everyone is saved no matter how they respond, even if they mock God, even if they reject God, even if they despise God or revile God. There is no woe for them. There's only welcome and rest for everyone. But by what authority does anyone say such a thing? By what authority do you or they or I decide for ourselves who God is and what his gospel says? Do we have that authority to make that determination? Or will we allow God to speak for himself? Will we allow Jesus to declare his own gospel? And what we find when we allow God to speak and for Jesus to teach is that the gospel is both woe and welcome. It is both judgment and grace. And this you know, type of speaking of Jesus isn't an isolated thing. It runs through everything he says. If you go to Matthew, back to Matthew 10, where we were uh, a while ago, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So this is the kind of language that Jesus speaks regularly here and in many other places, and some of them we'll touch on later. Jesus will not allow us to ignore his whole nature nor the whole gospel. Between these two statements at the close of Matthew chapter 11, we see the whole Christ. We see Jesus, the authoritative judge, and Jesus, the gracious master. And we also see the whole gospel, the wrath of a righteous God against sin and the love of a merciful God towards his children. So let's just look at these two components of the gospel, these two components of Christ, and see what it is that we need to understand about them. And the first component is the wrath of God and Jesus, the authoritative judge. It says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so this is where the message of Jesus starts. Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and then later on, Capernaum. These were three cities of Israel at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus began his ministry and many of his miraculous works were done. And he compares these cities to Tyre and Sidon, and later on, even to Sodom. And Tyre and Sidon were Gentile port cities on the coast of the Mediterranean, and they were renowned similar to the port city of Corinth for the degenerate lifestyle that the citizens there pursued. 
Uh, it was sort of a melting pot of every kind of activity that you could imagine. I would guess that the modern day equivalent would be something like Las Vegas, that people even today boastfully call Sin City. Jesus says Bethsaida, Chorazin, even Capernaum, it'll be better off for Las Vegas in the judgment than it will be for you. And so we see here that Jesus has the right and authority to denounce them, to judge them, to proclaim woe to them. Why? What does Jesus see in these unrighteous cities? What is the message of the first half of the gospel? Well, he tells us in the text here, he says, they did not repent. You had opportunity to repent, but you did not. Even Tyre and Sidon would have humbled themselves, would have felt their sorrow. And that's what sackcloth and ashes means, that they would have felt their sorrow, that they would have humbled themselves, that they would have repented if I had shown them what I've shown you. But you, cities, you didn't humble yourself. You show no sorrow over your sin. You don't repent. And then Jesus describes the condition those cities will find themselves in. He says, will you be exalted in heaven? No. You will be brought down into Hades. These cities find themselves under the wrath of God, not to be exalted or lifted up in heaven, but sent down into the grave and left abandoned in hell without any hope in the day of judgment to come. So we need to take this deadly seriously. Notice how the gospel begins then. The gospel does not come along and say, God will be reconciled to you and everyone without the need of any action or response on your part. Just think, is, is that what John the Baptist preached? Did John the Baptist come and say, everything is okay, Israel. God loves you. You're fine. Carry on about your business as you were. No. If you remember our teaching from Matthew 3, John told them to repent and flee the wrath to come. And Jesus follows John and he preached the same gospel. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then Peter preaches after Jesus. He preached in Jerusalem. And when he preached to the people of the city, they cried out, what shall we do? They were in despair. And Peter's reply to them in their despair was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel always starts with woe and repent. Because our situation is that we are under the wrath of a righteous and holy God for our sin. If we don't understand that, then we don't understand the gospel and we don't understand scripture. We don't even understand Jesus Christ. It's impossible to understand the Bible. It's impossible to understand the gospel. It's impossible to understand Jesus and what he did unless we understand that the whole gospel, the whole message of the Bible begins with woe. You look at the Bible itself, it's divided between the Old Testament and the New. The Old Testament or the Old Covenant is a covenant of works, a covenant of woe unto you. The law pronounces judgment. Psalm 14, 2 to 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And Paul explains in Galatians 2, 16, he says, By the works of the law, no one will be justified. The law is a covenant of works, and we will not be saved by works, by trying hard to be morally righteous. That's the Old Testament. It is woe unto you. What is the New Testament but the pronouncement of come to me? It's a covenant of grace. It's the fulfillment of the hopeful prophecies of the Old Testament. The old law was only a schoolmaster that led us to Christ, Paul says in Galatians 3. 
Not only can we not understand the scripture, not only could we not understand our Bibles without understanding this, but we can't understand communion. We can't understand the ordinance of the Lord's Supper unless we understand there's a beginning point of woe in the gospel. Why must there be a sacrifice? Why must we remember death and atonement at the love feast? Why did Jesus have to die? We can't understand the cross. We can't understand communion if we try to divorce wrath from grace or divorce woe from welcome. In fact, we can't even understand the world at all without understanding this. Why is there violence? Why is there greed? Why is there poverty? Why is there pride? Why is the word world steadily falling apart? Why is the word collapsing? Why is there remorse and regret and guilt in the heart of mankind? Because we have sinned. We have destroyed what God intended for us, and God's judgment is properly placed. There's no person and no God who is righteous, who could smile on sin, who could condone it. We don't condone our own sin, so how could we expect or respect a God who would be able to excuse sin without any judgment or penalty. If, if any God was to do that, we would consider that God to be unrighteous and unjust. And so our God cannot simply excuse sin without any judgment, without any penalty, because he is a just and righteous God. And we would expect that of justice and righteousness. There must be judgment. There must be woe before there can be welcome and rest. But that's only half of the gospel. That's the first part, and we don't want only that half any more than we are better off with only the second half. But Jesus goes on. We have the mercy of God and Jesus, the gracious master. So verse 25 says, after pronouncing woe on these cities, says at that time, Jesus declared, or at the same time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you didn't that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So at the same time as pronouncing woe, Jesus continues to speak. Woe is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning that cannot be forgotten. These two things are spoken at the same time and they have to be understood together. The message of the New Testament is this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, Galatians 4 says. So God has sent his son. This is the message of the New Testament. This is what we've been studying in Matthew all of this time. But why has he sent him? Why has the son come? Has he come simply to judge the world and complete the wrath of God? No, that is not what Jesus says. He says in Luke 19, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It will say in Matthew 20. Why did this son of God and this son of man have to give up his life? Why did he have to go to the cross? How do we understand the necessity of it? And we have to understand that it was necessary. In the garden, as the soldiers were coming to take Jesus, Peter, drew his sword to fight. But Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Jesus says to, Matthew, to, to, Jesus says to Peter, I could stop this if it wasn't required. If, if this wasn't necessary, do you think I would do it? But it is necessary, it is required, and I'm not going to stop it from happening. 
I have asked this cup to be passed from me, but the Father has not removed it. How can all righteousness be fulfilled if I don't go to the cross? This is necessary. My death is necessary because of the wrath and the judgment that must take place. And what we learn here from Jesus's words is that God is hidden from those that consider themselves wise. That Jesus came to deliver us from the woe and from the wrath. That's what he's hidden. That's what the people in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum did not get. They were the wise that did not see what God had hidden from them, that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had to die and that this was necessary for their salvation from the woe and from the wrath. God had to have Jesus come to provide a way that God can be both the righteous punisher of sin and at the same time the loving savior of men and women. It's kind of a strange way to put it, but God has, in the person of Jesus Christ, solved his own eternal problem. God was, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Because God is righteous and holy, but he is also love and mercy and compassion. So our righteousness and love in conflict then. Is there a conflict between woe unto you and come unto me? Is there a conflict in God that he has both of these natures, righteous, authoritative justice, and also mercy, grace, and compassion? There is never conflict in God. These two natures are reconciled perfectly. Both righteousness and love are there in God and are there in Christ Jesus. And both righteousness and love, justice and compassion meet and are reconciled perfectly on the cross. That is why it is necessary. And that is why the whole gospel must contain both of these parts. You cannot divorce one from the other. They're both necessary to make any sense of or any understanding of what the gospel is. How can God remain just in punishing sin and yet still call a sinner to rest in him? In the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. It's only in what Christ has done on the cross that God remains just and sin is atoned for, and yet sinners can be called to find rest in God. And that is when Jesus beckons to us. He says, come to me, come to me. How can he make this offer? Jesus explains how he can make this offer. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Jesus says, I'm the gracious master. I have all things in my hand. I have this authority. I have this ability to call you to come because the father has given them to me and no one knows the father except me and whoever I reveal the father to. Jesus doesn't mean that we don't know about God, but he's saying you can't know God unless you have an encounter with me, unless I, by the Holy Spirit, fill you with a knowledge of God that passes understanding, that you receive this gracious gift of Jesus, of the knowledge of God. Jesus says, no one really knows the Father except that I offer to share that knowledge. Notice that Jesus has the authority to pronounce woe on who he will. And it is Jesus who chooses on whom he will reveal the Father. And we're confronted again with the two conditions we can find ourselves in. There are only two conditions. And between these two conditions, the whole gospel is understood. 
Jesus divides like a sword, one group against another. There are only sheep or goats. There is no third way. There is no neutral ground. As John chapter 3 says, not John 3.16, but just a little bit after that verse in 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, there's just, there's just the two. There's either woe or welcome. There's either condemnation or there is no condemnation. There is either woe on those who won't repent or welcome to those who will come. So then who then does he choose to reveal the knowledge of God? Who is it that Jesus offers rest to and peace to? Well, he tells us that too. Just as he proclaims woe on the cities for their unrepentance, he explains who is welcome to come. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come to me all. The offer is open to all, but notice the qualifier. Who are those who are going to respond? All who labor, all who are heavy laden, all who are burdened by their sin and burdened by striving for their own righteousness. The offer is not made to people, notice, because they're nice people or they've lived pretty good lives, or have measured up to the law, or who pass the test and qualify for a stamp of approval from Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all of you who are nice people and who are trying really hard to be good. I like you the best, and so you can come and be my friend. No, that's not at all what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are burdened. And the offer is not made to the wise and to the ones who think they have their own answers, who shrug off God and his judgment. This is the contrast to Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Jesus preached in those cities and he did mighty works and yet they despised him. The Pharisees didn't want to be told they were guilty and they were smug in their self-righteousness. I don't need God. I'm good enough as I as I am. And the Greeks with their philosophies thought the message of the gospel was foolishness. What is this about a cross and a God who dies? What kind of foolish kind of message is this? They're too smart for what Jesus was teaching. So the offer is not for them, but for the childlike, for the humble, for the repentant, those that are burdened and weary of striving. Those are the ones who will hear the offer of Jesus and come. Jesus offers rest to them. They feel the weight of their sin, and they are not wise in their own eyes. They're not teenagers who know everything. They're young children. They are babies, just toddlers, who say, I can't lift these heavy burdens. I can't understand the way of life. I don't know my way through this. I'm not wise, and I need to learn. And to them, Jesus says, good. Now you're in the right position to learn from me. It's not about what you've done. It's not about how good you are or how bad you are. It's about your attitude towards me. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Do you feel the weight of your sin the way these cities did not feel it? And if you feel that weight, and if you understand that you need to learn, then come and I will teach you. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I have rest for you. It's the end of striving. It's the end of fear. 
Yoke yourself to me and my teaching. I'm not leaving you to yourself to strive. I'm coming alongside you. The word yoke in the Greek is interesting. It's zugos. It's the same word used for a pair of weigh scales. It's a double-sided scale or a double yoke. The rabbis would speak of the yoke of the law being heavy. And Jesus says, yoke yourself to me and my teaching and I will bear the yoke. It will be light. But it also means that we give all of ourselves to Jesus. When you put yourself in a yoke with another, it's a 100% commitment. You can't just put one arm or put one shoulder into the yoke. You take on the whole yoke. And where Jesus goes, you will go with him. On the farm, if you wanted to train a young ox or a young horse to follow the commands of the master, you would yoke that younger animal to an old, strong one. And the old, strong animal would teach the younger how to follow the commands of the master. If it went left, the young wouldn't have a choice. It went left too. If the strong animal stopped or moved, the young stopped or moved with the animal it was yoked to. This is what the rabbis and Jesus are speaking of. You yoke yourself to me and yoke yourself to my teaching and I will train you. And while you're training, I will pull the weight too. You have to humble yourselves to the yoke and submit to my way. But if you do, you will find rest. You will cease your own striving. To those people that humble themselves who do not rely on their own wisdom, but who seek Jesus as empty-handed as a child, or as a young horse who needs guidance. Jesus does not say, woe. He says, rest. I've got the weight of your righteousness. Cease striving and come close to me. It's the condition of our heart that determines our relationship with Jesus. That's who decides if they hear this message from Jesus. If you sit in judgment on Jesus and say you don't need him and you never wanted him, the answer of Jesus is woe unto you. But if you repent and acknowledge and feel your need, if you confess your sin and your empty handedness, then the invitation will be offered to you. Come and find rest. Don't work harder at your own righteousness. Walk with Jesus and let him train you in righteousness. It will come in time as you walk close with him. That is the whole Christ. That is the whole gospel. They're not contradictory, woe and welcome. They explain everything we need to know as a child can understand it. Have you heard this invitation? Are you ready to listen? Will you let Jesus be the authority of what the gospel is? And what are you going to do with this? Everyone has to confront the reality of Jesus at some point and decide what will they do with him? Will it be woe or will it be welcome? But we cannot divorce these two messages. They come out of the mouth of the same man at the same time. It is the same teaching. It is the whole gospel. If you would hear him, answer his invitation, repent and receive what he offers. And then for the rest of your life, the only answer you have for the peace and the joy that you have in your life is that Jesus offered and you received. It was by no work of your own. It was not by your striving. It was because you humbled yourself and you yoked yourself to the one who would be your righteousness for you, who would teach you and train you, who would bear the burden on your behalf. That is the whole gospel. That is the whole Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus did spoke, speak so clearly that he was... Uh, 
not subtle. He was not uh, unclear. He made it very clear the situation that we were in, that we were under the wrath of God, and that the gospel contained both the wrath and the love of God, that we had to understand our situation before we could understand our need and the salvation that was at hand. So, Father, I pray that as we read our Bibles, I pray that as we engage with the gospel with others, that we would not try to sell half a gospel, that we would not try to proclaim only part of the message. It will not work. There is no welcome without their first being woe. Make us students of, yoke us to the reality of the whole Christ and the whole gospel. Settle this matter in our hearts, that there is a righteous and just God, but that he is loving and compassionate, and that that love and that that justice find themselves perfectly reconciled in the person of Christ Jesus. Draw us closer to your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.